When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Even if there's a, a small chance that we can undo this, I mean, we owe it to everyone who's not in this room to try. If we do this, how do we know it's going to end any differently than it did before? Because before you didn't have me. As the few billion people who saw last year's Infinity War know, things didn't go too well for the Avengers when they went up against Thanos and his fistful of Infinity Stones. But after picking up Brie Larson's Captain Marvel in the offseason, the remaining Avengers look to give it another go in Endgame, which is out this week. What about Spider-Ham? He was a free agent. I'm surprised they didn't pick up his contract. Should have grabbed Spider-Ham. On this week's show, our review of Endgame, and we continue our look at the career of the late Stanley Donnan with 1957's Funny Face, starring Audrey Hepburn and Fred Astaire. It's all ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Yes, we've got Avengers talk on the show, specifically Endgame. And, you know, I don't want to spoil anything, Josh, but there's actually a tiny bit of singing and dancing yeah. in this film. That's true. A tiny bit. So maybe it does tie in with the rest of our show, because not only are we going to get to the second film in our Stanley Donnan marathon, Funny Face, you caught up with Beyonce's Homecoming on Netflix, and I've been watching Fosse Verdon with Sam Rockwell and Michelle Williams on FX, and we might just spend a few minutes on those as well, all of that later in the show. But first, we came, we saw, we managed to make it through Avengers Endgame without a bathroom break. Our very strength invites challenge. Challenge incites conflict. Conflict breeds catastrophe. The thing isn't beautiful because it lasts. We're all going to go see Avengers Endgame, Adam. You and I had the press screening earlier today. I'm going to be seeing it again Friday night with the family. Yet, every audience member is probably going for slightly different reasons. You've got your Captain Marvel fans, your Black Panther devotees, and then there's who do you side with in the Iron Man Captain America rift? Cap. 
some people. It should be Cap. Some people are going who only know these characters from the MCU movies. Others are comic book aficionados who bring a lifetime of knowledge into the films. Still, there's maybe one thing that unites us all when we go to see Avengers Endgame. Given that this marks a moment of finality for the MCU, we'll get more films, but it's fair to say there are a few ways in which the landscape is now irrevocably changed. We won't discuss any of that until spoiler talk at the end of our review. What we're all probably looking for, then, is a satisfying sense of closure. We've given a lot to these movies. They've given a fair amount back. As the conclusion to a storyline 11 years and 22 films in the making, Adam, are you happy with how Endgame ties the MCU room together? I see what you did there, Mm. even if all of our listeners don't quite yet. I will point out real quick before I answer your question that my family visit my rewatch of Avengers. Endgame is slated for Sunday, May 5th. The whole family going except for my wife, Sarah, who could not care less. (laughs) And that was the first time, really, at the multiplex out by us, I could get tickets where we weren't in the front row. Yeah, I think we're in row three. I was a little slow on picking those up, and we might pay the price. Everybody else in the family, very, very excited, as fans of the MCU are and should be. The MCU has generally successfully balanced planetary and personal stakes. And I think that Endgame is a worthy culmination of that storytelling approach, if that's a good way to initially answer your question. This conflict of being who you are versus who you're supposed to be is explicitly stated a couple times in this film, and it plays out in this film, just as it played out in some form in probably every MCU film. And the ones that balance that conflict the best are, for me, the best, primarily the Captain America movies, the two good Iron Man movies. And yes, I do think Iron Man 3 counts as one of the better MCU films. And I'd throw Black Panther in there as well. And I'm probably overlooking one or two. One of the ways it manifests itself in this film and in the series is who these characters love or come to love and the choices they have to make between serving that person, serving that love, and then growing as a person or serving all people the country, humanity, etc., and growing as a hero. What's pleasing, ultimately, about this film and this chapter of the MCU, which I think is how we can kind of think of it, because the MCU isn't stopping, right? right? But this sort of portion of it is. It isn't in who lives or dies, or whether good prevails over evil. It's whether or not all of those threads that the MCU has asked us to invest in are given their due and resolved. I would say at least for the core Avengers, I think they're referred to as the original six Avengers, the ones we've seen in not only multiple Avengers films, but in the case of most of them, in multiple solo efforts too. For me, that closure, individually and collectively, was satisfying. What about you? Yeah, I like how you put that, the planetary and the personal. It's almost like, you know, you can see that ledger, each film kind of going up or down one way Mm -hmm. or the other. And I think you're absolutely right. When the personal for me rises above the planetary, I've enjoyed them more. And that was going to be the challenge here with Endgame, how they were going to handle that balance. Uh, I think they do, for the most part, handle it well in a way that gave me a sense of closure in terms of what I'm looking for out of these films. I don't think Endgame is some sort of crowning achievement that goes somewhere inspired or unexpected, 
but I don't think it fumbles things either, which was a real danger. In fact, I think it probably picks up the ball that Infinity War had dropped, in my estimation, and uh, and carries it across the goal in a way that works. Uh, I really liked the opening section of this film and the grieving space. Yeah that it leaves us in, uh, that allows us to sit with this palpable sense of loss, personal loss, to your point, that I just felt Infinity War's shock ending didn't allow for. Uh, It it just felt too gimmicky to me, and my big disappointment was that for all the characters we lost there and characters I had come to really feel attached to, it didn't hit me as it should have Mm -hmm. for a variety of reasons. Here, by letting us sit in this world, this post-Thanos world that is... Um, there's just a collective mourning that is still taking place. His, his grand vision was, of course, for more resources, more space, and a thriving. And instead, we see, because this loss is so deep, not just in the characters we know, but across, you know, we see cityscapes that mm-hmm. that look gray and barren. And it's not because of some sort of apocalyptic battle. It's because people are gone. Yeah, There's a really important touch where there's a memorial we see a few years after the events of the last film. And I think it's it's called The Vanished. And it's just lists of names of people who did disappear during that event. And that helps build this world out of real loss and real grief. And I think it's pretty brave for the film to let us sit in that before it gets on to the things that uh, we we're maybe more expecting the movie might Give us. Now, maybe what's a good way to to go from here? Because we do want to talk spoilers at the very end of this. Mm -hmm. um, But maybe we can touch on a few things that really worked for us that are spoiler safe. And then some things that didn't. Does yeah, that you that... want to take the chance? Go okay. for it. Because I think there are some things you can you can talk about. And and let me bring up the first. It's something I've mentioned a number of times when it comes to the MCU movies. Is Chris Hemsworth's value as a comedian? Yes. I saw it there from the start, but I think each film built on that more and more. And Endgame really. I'm not going to say how because no. the, there's a surprising way it does that, but it lets him loose primarily as a comedian in this film. Is that, is that fair to say? Yes, and absolutely. It's, and it's not what works, again, dancing lightly, is that it's not just for gags. It's no. also woven into his identity, his growth, his choosing who he wants to be, those things that you were talking exactly. about. And it manages to do it in ways that are both serious but also exceedingly funny. That He gives a rambling speech here, a rambling drunken speech that tries to catch the rest of the Avengers up on the events in Thor The Dark World. This was probably helpful for you, Adam. Yeah, I needed that. <laughs> you needed that. And, and it's just great because his timing is perfect, but also it's lampooning the fact that the die-hardest fan is the only one who's going to be able to keep this whole MCU straight, right? Exactly. And all the other Avengers are looking at him like, what are you talking yeah. about? And I could resonate with them. I think a lot of people in the audience sure. will resonate with that. And he's very, very funny in that scene and a lot of others. I think Paul Rudd is also used the best he has been in any of these films, including the Ant-Man ones, mm-hmm. which didn't really know what to do with his goofy charm. Um, I think in Civil War, he was there as like comic relief. But here it's a nice balance, too, of using that element of him, but also incorporating him into the more serious story. And he gets some some great lines as well. So, so I think that comic element is one safe positive I can talk about without spoiling anything. And to go back to what I mentioned at the beginning, a major thing for me has been the Civil War rift between Captain America and Iron Man. Uh-huh. Infinity War seemed to just toss that out the window because it wasn't useful for what that movie wanted to do. Here, it's addressed. 
Um, it's crucial to what's going on. I wouldn't say it's resolved in a facile way. It's kind of almost left hanging, yeah. but it's also crucial to them making choices. They have to make not whether or not they're going to mend all their fences, but just in the decisions this film puts before them, that rift is still elemental. And as you were saying, it's personal. So it I is. think that's a really strong element to Endgame. It's interesting that you mention that rift because it's been only a year since I saw Infinity War, but I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about it and I haven't rewatched it. And that rift between Tony and Cap did strike me as a little bit odd being revisited here only because in my mind, I didn't remember it at all from Infinity War. I sort of felt like, oh, well, they they resolved that, didn't they, from Civil War? And to have that back on the fore again did take me by surprise. That's probably my fault more than anything. I do think, as you explained, it works really well here. And that balance idea, how it balances the stakes, I think it applies here to everything you said, the comedy and the pathos. There is a lot of genuine emotion and sadness and grief, but it's all combined with humor. And I know we all think that Ragnarok with Taika Waititi and Hemsworth coming to the fore as a comedian there is the funny MCU movie. But I think I laugh more during this than Hmm. I did any other MCU film. And you're right. It's because of Hemsworth. It's not just the gag, whatever central gag there is. It's in his chops. It's in his timing. And you mentioned Paul Rudd. The single funniest moment in this movie, which we won't give away, but you touched on it. I was sitting next to you, so I know we both reacted to it, is a moment where he's listening to that story (laughs) that Thor is telling, and it's just a facial reaction. Literally, it's not a line at all. It's just the look on his face, which is, for me, the best moment in terms of humor in this entire film. I did want to say one thing about your comments about this being a post-Thanos world, and It definitely is, as you would expect. And I do think that was a nice choice by the Russo brothers here in terms of how they do portray this dystopia, which is essentially what it is. But except for an aerial shot or two that we get where we get a sense of the destruction and the grayness, the general darkness that has crept in, and we do get a therapy session Mm -hmm. at one point, we also do get that moment you touched on where a character goes and looks at the the wall, the monument to the vanquished. But other than that, they don't get sidetracked in trying to show us the exact ramifications of what happened because of that snap. What happened to the world? Everything we need to know is funneled through those characters. And again, it makes it personal more than anything else. Yeah, it's really palpable in a way, again, that I didn't expect this movie would go. And we should probably mention shares the same screenwriters as Infinity War, Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely. So they're definitely, they deserve credit for bringing that to to Endgame as well. You know what else I was pleasantly surprised by? I think Hulk technology may have finally yep. caught up yeah. with the movies. I had the same reaction. we get a Hulk here who's in between, as he describes himself. He's not full Bruce Banner. He's not full giant growling Hulk. He wears glasses and shirts. They get some comic mileage out of that. And Mark Ruffalo's facial expressions, you could see the seeds for this were in Thanos in Infinity War because Mm -hmm. Brolin, I think, was a plus, that performance and how you registered his face as much as his hulking presence. Here, you really register the facial expressions of Hulk. You see Ruffalo behind them. And that brings, sounds obvious, but a ton of personality to that part it did not have 
before, and Hulk's never been one of my favorite MCU characters, but I got to say, he was a positive presence in in this film, and the special effects have a lot to do with that, the performance as well. I think you're absolutely right. I wanted to ask you a question about the concept of fan service, because there were various points throughout this movie where I was thinking about that as an idea and how franchises and films deal with it or don't. I think we'll probably get into some of the particulars maybe in spoilers versus here. So I'm going to be pretty vague about it. But and I say this as just a fact, I'm not trying to be pretentious. I'm admitting to being a total idiot. But I think honestly, the first time I heard the phrase fan service, at least applied to a film was sitting across from you during a review. I just don't aggressively follow enough franchises or the discourse around them to be regularly thinking about that idea. And it was a negative review. I don't remember whether it was an MCU film or it could have been, it seems like one of hundreds of options at this point. But the idea was, and the idea behind fan service as a negative thing, is that I suppose if you're too determined to serve the fans, presumably the hardcore fans, then you're throwing in elements that take away from good storytelling, whether it's world building or character development, whatever it might be, those personal elements, maybe just appealing to less sophisticated instincts, if you will. My thought, and I throw it back to you, Josh, is Endgame the proper example of fan service in the way it seems to recognize and acknowledge how this film and this franchise as a whole fits into the landscape of popular culture. And by fitting, I mean, has kind of dominated the landscape of popular culture. But those acknowledgements for me were more gratifying than gratuitous. I think they're rooted in what we respond to and appreciate again about these characters and these stories. So yes, this film is fan serving in precisely the way I have to think anyone who has been on this journey is expecting. And I want to be clear we all do have different favorite MCU films and characters and moments. There's not one sort of monolithic fan response. But if you've stuck with this series, my feeling is it's more because of your attachment to these characters. So watching this film indulge that attachment without compromising the material, that's good fan service. Well, is it fair to say that at this point the MCU has registered the concept of fan service moot because out of the sheer size and cultural impact of it, it has, and I'm going to say forced us all, even Mm -hmm. though I've largely enjoyed these films, forced us all to become fans. So anything it does, to your point, is at this point fan service. And I don't know if that's because it struck a nice balance or because we've all succumbed. And I, for the most part, enjoyed succumbing to it. And that allows me to, to get to a specific, that doesn't give anything away, to really appreciate a moment here in Endgame that I think is meaningless unless you remember the exact moment it's referencing in Captain America Winter Soldier. It's one of my favorite action scenes in the entire franchise, the elevator showdown Mm -hmm. with Cap and a bunch of bad guys. There's a sequence here that explicitly calls back on that, and it's not even a reference. It needs your knowledge of how that scene played out to appreciate how this one does. Because if you don't have that, you will be utterly confused. What was the whole point of those couple of moments? Uh, I I won't get into the details why, but in the past, I would have said that's the sort of fan service that's distracting Mm -hmm. because it required that knowledge. But I've been beaten into submission and now I like it. Yeah, and it's because (laughs) of how well they do it, I think, and I suppose the reverence with which they handle it, but also 
that we do have that investment. And as you said, for the most part, we both were talking about this right before we sat down to record. And we'll get into a little bit of feedback maybe in our poll segment a little bit later. There's maybe this sense that we're MCU haters, or at least I'm an MCU hater. And I looked at my letterboxed ratings and my MCU ranking of the 20 films that I've seen. Well, now 21 out of the 22 still have not seen Thor The Dark World, and now I don't need to. No, right? you've got it's, it. It's all been played out for me. <laughs> but I've given positive reviews to 13 of those 20, now 14 of 21, and even a couple of those seven that are maybe in that negative column are mixed. They were close to positive reviews. So overall, I'm a fan of this franchise, and this film, Endgame, only heightened that fandom. Yeah, now let me deflate that a little bit because before I sound too positive, there are some things that are holding me back. Most I'll get to in spoilers, but okay. one may be worth bringing up now. I think it's fair to say and safe to say that this does involve a battle sequence. Yeah. It's gigantic. I mean, we're talking Lord of the Rings level. Yeah. And I, and I appreciate those battle sequences. So it's not merely a matter of size mm -hmm. or scale, but I do think that this one, as many of the MCU battle sequences suffer from, just just gets too chaotic, too blurry, too much going on, and also it's it's too repetitive of what yeah. we saw in Infinity War. No, I agree. And that is also tied to the fact that there's not a lot of great action in Endgame. Uh, it was also a critique I had of Infinity War that... There was more action. There were more action scenes in that movie. None of them really stood out here. There are very few action scenes. There's one involving a character, and I'm not going to say who at this point, but it's a sword fight. And the Russo brothers try to do some, you know, single take movements that mm -hmm. add a little dynamism to it. Yes. But there's... <sighs> Other than that, it's not a standout sequence like they've been able to do in something like Winter Soldier or or Captain America Civil War. So I still miss that element here. I mean, these are these are like what? How much of their identity should be action films, essentially? A fair amount, sure. right? I don't know that we get a ton of great action here. No, we definitely don't. And I'll go back to that moment. You talked about this sequence with the long take. It really does stand out as a sort of bravura camera moment. But at the same time, it doesn't really work with the moment we're watching because it turns it into something grandiose mm. and actually something almost magical when it's actually, yeah, when it's actually sort of a terrible moment for that character. So I think it yes. in a way doesn't really serve that moment or that character at all. I agree with everything you said about the action here, except ultimately I still appreciated the fact that there was so little action. The spectacle hmm. of the end didn't really work for me, but it also had enough moments that were, pleasing to me that the redundancy of it, the chaos of it didn't bother me as much as it did with other films. And overall, it gets back to what I was saying about the personal stakes of this film. I guess I want my MCU movies to be like a Noel Coward play or something. But the more the characters were talking yeah. to each other, the better this film was to me. So the fact that we only get a few bits of action here and there, and then we do get the the finale, which it does seem appropriate for this film and this chapter of the MCU. I just couldn't quibble with it too much. And overall, I guess, like the restraint of not going for too many action set pieces. It's going to be interesting, speaking of fan service, to see how the audience reaction is to 
this three-hour film that doesn't have a lot of action. You know, yeah. how, how much uh, general audiences are expecting that and want that to be part of their MCU films. Because you're right, very little of it here, but I would agree those interpersonal scenes are among the highlights. So it sounds like we're maybe at a good stopping point. Yeah. We recommend, both of us, it sounds like, Indeed. Avengers Endgame. I would say so. We will... Stop there. For the people listening on the radio, if you do ultimately want to hear some of our spoiler thoughts on this film, you can find the full version of this show at filmspotting.net or wherever you get your podcasts. For our podcast listeners, we're going to cue a little bit of music here and come back with spoiler thoughts. Do not listen if you haven't seen Avengers Endgame. Before we're done, we still have one promise to keep. If we can't protect the Earth, you can be damn sure we'll avenge it. Whatever it takes. So as promised, wanted to share some thoughts and reactions to Avengers Endgame without worrying about ruining it for anyone who might actually be listening to this discussion before they saw the movie. Now you've had a chance to see it, and you're probably wondering whether or not we're going to touch on all the questions and moments that stood out for you. Josh, is there any place in particular you want to start? Yeah, because my favorite thing about the movie I can't really talk about, and it's the time travel element, which they at once have fun with and make fun of, but yeah. really double down on. Totally. And maybe we can talk about whether or not that works for you as much as it needs to in any time travel movie. I thought they handled the balance really well. And what it did allow for is that sequence, that extended section where they're revisiting old MCU movies. Mm -hmm. I love that. I thought it was the highlight. What it did for me is the MCU has always had a sense of humor about superheroes, okay? That's one of its distinguishing characteristics. It knew how to be light on its feet. It knew how to suggest that some of this might be a little silly, but let's play along anyway. I've appreciated that. This is the first time I think that uh, the MCU has had a sense of humor about its own massive scale. Yeah. And the fact that it is this behemoth that we are all carrying, trying to carry. It's almost like just when this thing was about to eat its own tail, it found a way to relieve the pressure. Yeah. And revisiting those movies with the characters as they jump back in time to find the Infinity Stones as they're placed in different, seeing some of those films from different camera angles, watch the characters watch each other. Mm -hmm. It was Really delightful. I thought very clever, well-handled, fit within the larger narrative. Uh, maybe some sequences worked better than others we can talk about. Um, but that was a new sense of humor to the whole thing that, that again, I thought really – it almost saved it right when it was becoming too hmm. much for itself. Yeah, I got very nervous. I agree with you that it ultimately was delightful. But when we set off on that portion of the film, knowing what we're in for – I was having flashbacks to Infinity War and how overall the Russo brothers did a good job jamming in all those different characters and storylines, but it felt like it was overstuffed to me. Mm -hmm. And we didn't get enough of that time just to hang out with these characters. And when we start going off to different times and different places, and again, you know how many of them are ahead. You know you have to try to round up six different Infinity Stones and they're all going to have different obstacles in their way. I got nervous, yeah. but overall I think it was handled pretty deftly. And I think the humor, that's not something I thought about at all, but you're right. I think the way it took moments that in other films were undoubtedly these 
incredibly intense or serious moments, yeah. right, where everything is heightened because it's all life or death. And now we get to observe someone else being an observer yeah. of a lot of these moments, and that somehow deflates them in a way that still managed to make the overall objective of their mission suspenseful. Well, and it just mirrors our experience with the franchise. Yeah. It's it's how we think about that movie. Remember when we thought that was so important that this was the end of the world? Right. And, and here it's, and the movie knows that. And it's kind of, we're all able to kind of laugh together at this extended journey we've been on without being completely, without it ever like satirizing itself mm-hmm. or really lampooning itself. It's just recognizing It's sheer size and scale. Yeah. No, you're right. It is. I think for me, maybe the single best moment in the film, besides the great Paul Rudd reaction to Hemsworth's story. Which I want to revisit. Yeah. It's because he loves it. Oh, he loves it. That's the great thing. Everyone else is like, like, what's this dude talking about? He's just, he's got that (laughs) wide eye. He's he's the one person sitting in dark world (laughs) eating it up. It's true, right? Because he's been in this quantum realm and has no idea what anyone's (laughs) talking about. So he's all in on this story. But there's another great moment. And it's not a great moment, actually. I shouldn't use that word because that's not it. And yet I appreciated it so much. It's when Tilda Swinton shows back up on screen. And... What is she, the Sorceress Supreme? Sor- yeah, I think that's I think right. That's Adam. her title. She even nice. she says that at one point. Thank you. And there's a moment where she is given some information. This is spoiler, so I can say it. Bruce, the Hulk, tells her that Doctor Strange let it happen. Mm-hmm. Let yeah, gave Thanos, up the Infinity Stone. Right. Basically, stop fighting. Allowed that snap to happen. And when she learns that, there's a pause on screen before responding to that information for what seems like 30 seconds. It might only be three Uh seconds, but it's just such a good Tilda Swinton moment where she just holds the screen, just holds our attention. We don't get a witty or kind of all-knowing rejoinder at all. It's just a genuine reckoning with what she learned, and only Tilda Swinton, I think, would make that choice in that moment. Sure, sure. And it's also a clever balancing act of the time travel element, right? Because she and Banner are talking about different strains of time Mm -hmm. at that point. And it could easily be taken too seriously or not seriously enough. And she gives it that weight, that importance. And it's crucial that she changes her mind because it doesn't matter if this logically makes sense or scientifically makes sense. As Banner says, the science doesn't support that. What matters is this character we know as having extensive wisdom realized doesn't she say something like i might have been wrong Mm -hmm. and and changes the trajectory of things yeah it's a nice moment yeah it is now some other moments that stood out to me that maybe fall into that category of fan service but i like them and this is going to the very end of the film the line that robert downey jr has at the end of the film i am iron man that's Mm, a good moment yeah thor chopping off the head of thanos and actually acknowledging that he went for the heart instead of the head. I mean, I hear my kids make jokes about that because it's a meme. Yeah. Everybody knows it. Now, again, I, I blame Peter Quill for Thanos getting away with it, not <laughs> Thor. But this movie, again, I think this is where it sort of fits into, it acknowledges that that's part of the discourse yeah, around the film, right? Yes. And to not acknowledge it would be silly. But at the same time, it's not just them winking at us. It makes sense that Thor would have that guilt and he would have yes. guilt specifically over that choice. So I think it's fan service, but ultimately ties back to serving the character and serving this larger story because it totally makes sense that he would have that remorse. And this whole series has been about these characters having to make those kinds of choices. As we said, one other moment that stood out to me is one in that end battle and 
it's all kind of a blur, even though we just walked out of the movie about two hours ago. Is it Captain Marvel who is about to go in to attack Thanos and a character says, maybe Wanda Elizabeth Olsen says, it's okay, she's got help. And we get this shot, the camera pulls back and goes wide and we see about eight or nine women from this series all supporting each other. Now, again, maybe that's just one of those moments that's carefully crafted to get a huge cheer out of a large section of the odds. But you know what? It works. It really works. And one of the reasons it works, or I would say the reason it works, isn't because, oh, look at the Russo brothers giving a, a nod to female empowerment. It's because over the course of these films, we've come to love these characters. They're badass characters. And them combining forces to be badass women together... It's a pretty thrilling moment. It is. And it's also nicely handled in that it's it's this unbroken take that uh, allows the whole group to form together. Mm-hmm. I mean, aesthetically, it's just well handled also. So we have to talk about the deaths and the goodbyes and uh, how how each of those registered. I'm not ready for it, Josh. <laughs> well, let's start with Natasha, Black Widow. Yeah. And a surprise to me Um Sort of a periphery character on this series, even though she gets a lot of screen time. Mm-hmm. Part of that, I think, is the fact that she doesn't have superhero powers. I think this would have been more affecting to me, but I was kind of caught up in the debate she was having with Hawkeye at the time. This takes us back to the Soul Stone mm-hmm. Mountain, where someone must be sacrificed in order to get the Soul Stone. And the whole Hawkeye narrative, that was the character we talked about in the main yes. review, who's the opening sword the fighting. And the sword fight. Yeah, because he's at the opening. We see him lose his family. Then he becomes this vigilante, just killing criminals at will. And here, now he's back with the team, and he and Black Widow are in search of the Soul Stone. And they start fighting over who's going to jump off the cliff. Just the motivations were all over the place there. Because so that moment, Josh, when they say to each other, we know the choice that has to be made. Yeah. And then Hawkeye makes the joke. It seems like we might actually have different thoughts yeah. on that. You're saying it wasn't clear, as clear to it's the not characters. Even, it's those not even the clarity. Are. For me, it's why would Hawkeye, who is on the, the reason for this mission is to restore his family. Right. The loss of his family is what sent him into this tailspin. Why now would he make this sacrificial act, which would separate him from his family? It would bring his family back, I suppose. So he's doing it for yes, them in a way. he's sacrificing for them. Um, I, I just, the characters were not given the um, the amount of time or space or narrative for that moment to play well, especially when it's a repeat of the Thanos Gamora moment, which I thought was one of the, the better handled ones in Infinity it War. It definitely was. Now, in the screenplay, they try to explain it. His willingness to jump isn't just that he's sacrificing for his family, but he has a line where he says, basically, I should go ahead and be punished for my sins, that I've been this bad character. But I agree with you that that is asking that one fight scene thought to do that one fight scene to do a lot of heavy lifting for us to believe that he actually should be the one to go. And in fact, I'd love to pull people. I imagine that Every single person watching that film would say, no, actually, she's the one that should probably go. You're the one with the family. It, it seems set up for that. And actually, only now does it occur to me. I was very curious as they were going to go off to their different destinations. And they said, we're going to split up in three different teams or whatever. And I was thinking, how are they going to divide it up? I can't wait to see who goes with who. And, yeah. and maybe we can piece together what choices were made. And we probably can based on what we see play out, understand precisely why. But how about the fact that the two total mortals, the people with really no powers whatsoever, Hawkeye and Black Widow, 
get sent off to space together. There is like, a, there's no Thor around. No. There's, no, there's no gods to be found. Nobody with any superhuman strength. Just those two. Doesn't seem fair. On a mountain in space. They, they do make a, a joke about it saying something how the spaceship has been automatically programmed so as long as oh, yeah. they just <laughs> sit there. But it kind of exposes exactly no. what you're talking about. So Tony Stark. Goodbye. Yeah. Goodbye, Tony. Goodbye, Tony. Surprised by that as well. I think a lot of the buzz was that Captain America was going to be the one who goes down in battle, at least. You know, that that moment, it was affecting. I think this movie is also, however, asking us, it's asking a lot of work to be done that we're going to follow him from being willing to die at the very opening. Or not mm-hmm. willing to die, but when we see him abandoned in space, accepting yes, of his accepting fate. accepting of his fate. Then he goes to five years later where he has a child um, with Pepper Potts and they have this new life together. And he sort of found the thing he never could find exactly. pre-Thanos. And they spend a lot of time on that mm-hmm. and really make us believe that he's found something he values. And then to have him be the make the sacrificial choice at the end. I guess you could say, well, that should only make it more impactful. Yes. But I can't I say I entirely bought it. Or maybe it's Pepper's reaction. You know, when when she's, it's back to when they're in the house and he says how I figured it out. I figured the time travel thing out and she's all on board. She's like, well, you have to do this. Well, and I'm thinking, wait a minute now. You, you've got, this has always been a point of tension between the sure. two of you. You've created this life together and now all of a sudden it's like, yeah, go do it again. I, I didn't have that same reaction. I feel like that character, we're meant to understand that she understands Tony better than he knows himself. Yeah, that's and, true. And she has accepted her fate in a way in that moment and knows that Tony can't be Tony if he's not saving the world. And I'm sure, at least I'm willing to believe that she's, of course, thinking about the larger ramifications, too, and what it means for lots of other people who may not be suffering. So I didn't mind at all how that played out or that choice. And in fact, in the end, I thought that choice to have it be Robert Downey Jr., to have it be Iron Man who finishes it all off, who Mm -hmm. makes that fateful decision to close this chapter, it only makes sense he was the guy who started it. Yeah, it's a nice bookend. Not only is it a bookend, but I also think, and it's mentioned or referenced in this movie, the idea that he brings it up when he's still pissed at, at Captain America about how he's the one who wanted the shield. You know, yeah. he wanted to just keep everybody safe. In some ways, that has been what has defined him as this kind of whatever it takes at all costs. Right. I've made the decision to save humanity and I'm going to do it. And so for him to be the one at the end, it seemed poetic to me. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's also, it is something of a large character arc where he starts as this incredibly selfish guy and is the one who's going to ultimately give up himself for everyone else. I loved how Captain America went out. Yeah. Absolutely loved it because it's something unique, surprising, and to watch a character in this realm of superheroism, gods, space heroes, whatever... Embrace mortality was incredibly bittersweet to make, to make that choice at the end yeah. to say, I'm going to age because it's it's partly so that he can reunite with the woman he lost, mm-hmm. who he loved, mm-hmm. and have that life with her. So I get that motivation, but I also think there's just this underlying thing of admitting you're human and seeing the value of that and, and the inevitability of death that yes. these movies in some ways – are all about 
pushing past. No one can die. No one can be killed. Mm -hmm. Even when they are in the last chapter, they can be resurrected. We have these gods who live thousands of years. There's a finality Um, to it. You're right. There is a Mm -hmm. There's an acceptance. And it's a different finality than Iron Man's finality, which is a common thread in superhero books is the, the sacrificial act. It's definitely final, but there's some, this is a different choice being made here by Captain America um, that's just really affecting and poignant. Yeah, I agree. And to understand it completely, as I think I do, let's just go ahead and spell it out. What happens is in a blink of an eye for us and his fellow Avengers, he goes back to place the Infinity Stones into their timelines to restore order to those timelines. So things play out as they should as Bruce promised the Sorcerer Supreme. At some point, presumably after doing that and restoring order, Cap decided, I'm also going to take advantage of this and go back to his original era and meet up with the love of his life, played by... Haley Atwell. Yeah. Yeah, Peggy Carter. Exactly. Yeah, as far as I understood it, he just jumped out earlier so that he could live a full life with her. Exactly what point I think the final images in the movie are of them embracing. Mm -hmm. And outside the house, we see cars that suggest maybe the... 40s, Maybe, yeah. 50s. So this is this leads to the question I wanted to ask. How did the time travel work for you? Yeah. On the level of, like, were there more of these questions enough to distract you? Or was there sort of lighthearted handling of it while at the same time the entire movie generates on it? Was that a good balance? Because for me, I didn't get tripped up. No. Um, and something like this, as we're talking about it now, yeah, I'm not sure exactly where did he go back to. But the overall point was that they found a way to go back in time. Yes. He found a way to manipulate it and jump out mm-hmm. before returning as he did before, which allowed him to age. And that's the question. Did he show up? Like, did he come back out of that time travel thing they had? Or was he just there? I think he as was an just old guy. There. I think he was just who there somehow as an old knew guy. they would be doing that. Exactly. Yeah. So see, we're, this is where like we're already peeling open the can of worms a little too far than I felt was necessary during the film. And for me, that's all that matters. I agree with you. Is if I'm opening that can while I'm watching it, it's because the choices that were made and the way it's been presented is not coherent enough. Yes. For me in the film. And it helps a lot that they make fun of themselves every once in a while about this. Some great Back to the Future jokes and so on. In the course of the film, I was not distracted by no, it. So I wasn't it either. Yeah, totally worked for me. And as we're talking about Captain America, I will point out another moment. The second funniest moment in the film, the best line in the film, is definitely Captain America fighting himself. Yes. And him saying, I could do this all day. Uh-huh. He goes, yeah, I know. You know, it's just the perfect delivery. Because it works for everyone who finds Captain America insufferable. <laughs> exactly. It's <laughs> like... a good way to put it. Now, I will also mention that as we're talking about the personal stakes of everything, and this goes back to our Infinity War discussion, where if I remember correctly, and I just had a moment to glance at my notes, I was a little bit mixed on Thanos that was the setup for the conversation. We had just come off of Black Panther and we're talking about how great Killmonger was as an MCU mm-hmm. villain. It was Thanos a step forward or a step back. And I remember feeling at the time, and I don't know if it was different here or not, but it wasn't a distraction to me here. I felt like there was a little too much of an Uncanny Valley thing where that line between CGI and realism was, it was always teetering for me and I was distracted by Thanos more than anything. But what I liked about Thanos was that, of course, they gave him an investment. They gave him a reason yeah. for why he's doing the things he's doing. And even though, of course, we are completely opposed to them and think he's diabolical, we understand 
what he is trying to accomplish, the same way we understand what Killmonger is trying to accomplish and the injustices he is trying to make up for. They do find a way with Thanos here, even, I would say, at the end of the movie to hold that over or to transfer it to this film where he's not just the bad guy, which, of course, he is. And they even see him. You can tell how they all, because they've all been reckoning with their loss the first time, Mm -hmm. getting a chance to meet him again, it, it, of course, becomes even more heightened. I guess what I'm trying to get at is that in that moment where he acknowledges that Actually, he made a bad choice the first time. He's learning from this process, and he's going to just apply a new lesson to this and take another course of action. I'm not saying it's more sympathetic. It's not. But I suppose what I'm getting at is there's at least a little bit of closure to Thanos as well and him having to come to terms with his actions. It's an interesting wrinkle. Uh, I think... I wouldn't say either that his motivation in Infinity War is sympathetic, but you do understand it in the way you're talking about. Here, the decision does make him a little bit more of just the monster, and it's a little more about ego. You get the sense that it's because his plan failed he's going to do this more than Hmm. he believes in a righteous cause. See, I'm seeing a little less of that, I guess. But I I do think it's an interesting idea going back to the grieving we notice is that his vision was things would be beautiful without half the population, and he didn't account at all for mourning. Mm-hmm. Um, and so by wiping that very human element out, he thinks he'll solve the problem. Mm-hmm. So that that is an interesting wrinkle it there. It, it leads me to a, a spoiler question I wanted to ask you and it has to do with the Infinity Gauntlet. I've never quite understood how this works. And when Iron Man wields it and snaps his fingers, only the bad guys vaporize. So is this thing like, does it, is it whatever you wish? Yeah, I mean, you honestly, get? is that what it I is? I mean, I was thinking about like, however these Infinity Stones came together, how someone realized that the magic to unlock them was snapping your fingers is kind of hilarious, well, <laughs> too, because they all have to do that yeah, to that. to make it work. But at least according to this film, it does suggest that because, of course, I was thinking about this after Infinity War and I'm sure others were as well. It suggests that basically, yeah, what you wish for. OK, it is a wish. It seems like it's it. a wish. Machine. As long as you think very specifically and wish okay. very specifically, you will get that thing. All right. Just wondering if there's That's more to it, it, but apparently not. So in terms of one aspect of the film that didn't really work for me that we can touch on in spoilers, Captain Marvel. Oh, because I think it's just a little bit too convenient. And I don't think they would even argue with us. It's very, the Russo brothers or anyone involved in the making of this film. Even they would have to acknowledge that when you have someone who has the power that Captain Marvel has, Mm -hmm. her ability to almost single-handedly solve any problem or battle any foe, even though we do see Thanos, you know, beats her up a little bit, but her abilities are so over the top that the movie has to get rid of her. She obviously would have been so useful in so many of these scenarios. And the movie says, well... We're going to give her her line where she explains that this is happening all over the universe and this is who she is. And it was set up by the last movie and she's going to go out and try to fight some of these battles everywhere else. But the notion and I know I'm I'm asking about realism, I suppose, in an Avengers movie, but the notion that she would run off and she manages to only show up precisely at the moment where they need her again is a nice screenwriting trick. It's the same problem Infinity War had with Black Panther and I think still has with Black Panther here in Endgame that these are two really beloved characters that get sidelined by the massive scale of this thing. And yeah, you get that line about, well, she's off doing this stuff in other corners of the universe, but 
when they finally embark on the time travel mission, you're like, okay, at this point, why is she not back here? Yeah. I mean, this is like what what they're about to do will render whatever she's doing now pointless. Exactly. So that's, yeah, there, there should have been more Captain Marvel and they could have handled it when she does show up to fight, you know. This has been an issue in all of the MCU films. There's always a character who seems to be the most powerful, and then something else happens where they're mitigated in some exactly. way. Exactly, and I've always and, had an issue with that. Yeah, and that Vision's and another character. It happens to her in the final battle, you know, where Thanos does manage to fend her off in certain right. ways. So they could have incorporated her. Uh, I think that would have been a better move. Yeah, I did really like, as we touched on Tony Stark and Robert Downey Jr. a little bit, those different father-son, father-child moments that we get. He gets an amazing gift as a character, right? Getting to actually go back and have that encounter with his father. And then we get to see that mirrored in him, not only interacting with his own child, but interacting with what is kind of his surrogate son in Peter Parker. Yeah. And they, there's real poignancy, I think, in that symmetry. Yeah, I don't think the scenes with his father play out. I get what they're going for, and it works thematically. But the fact that all of that would happen between... <laughs> Howard Stark and some guy who's rummaging around the basement of the military base. That's a bit of a stretch. Maybe. Thor, though, Thor but gets a nice it. one. RDJ sells it, I think. They sell it. And Thor gets a nice one with his mother as well. Yes, exactly. Where it's, uh, this in this case, it's a reunion. It's a, it's another resurrection in a way. And I think that's, that's a really nicely handled scene. It's an example of where Thor is not just the funny man in this movie. I mean, primarily, he, he gets to play a lot of comedy, but also gets a sequence like that, which really works. Did we miss anything? Oh, Until yeah. Until listeners we, write in. We probably missed a ton. I mean, <laughs> okay. the thing is three hours, but... Actually, I did have one more question. I was going to ask you, what 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 does the movie suggest happened to Gamora? Well, that's a moment that doesn't work at all, where one Quill, Quill is supposed to be, like, this is a, another resurrection yeah. sequence like that, and it's, and it's played for a kick to the well, balls joke? Well, but but that's my thing, is, like, I think the implication of it, right, is that she doesn't know. Oh, she doesn't know him. She doesn't know him. Right. But the choice to play the that for The choice to play it for comedy. But then, like, remember, he's searching for her at the end. See, it's just very interesting that the only... There's been loss, obviously, right? Um, but for the most part, the world has been put back into order and things haven't been undone. But one thing that has been undone is the relationship between Quill and Gamora. Yeah. That what, what's the phrase? It's a really interesting phrase that I was going to bring up. It's somebody says there are... I don't know. Anyway, at some point they do define like there's there's this sort of people who've died and there's this sort. So the van yeah. the vanished are in a different category than like Gamora and um Natasha. Right. And who else? Would be Vision. What's with what, Vision? Did Vision Yeah, but I'm he saying, died because no, he he's got dead. His, yeah. Dead. Whatever that See? definition is. But he's what really I'm gone. saying though, I think Gamora's even different than that construct because the only reason she's back at all is because she comes from a different timeline. Time right. She's not resurrected. She comes back from a different timeline. Right, right, so right. she's That's the true. person from 2012 or 14 yes. or whatever. Yes. She just doesn't know Quill. She has no right. affection. Yeah. We've seen over multiple movies their relationship. Yes. Now, Quill is moving forward in the world right. with this person he's had a history with. That person doesn't know any of that history. Well, that's so. Do, so, so that's do actually this, kind of sad. That's why at the end it's is she stuck in that timeline. Well, I, I would presume so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's she's the sense I She switched sides, and now, so now stuck she's in the timeline, in, she's but in, doesn't know Quill. Exactly. Yeah. So that's kind of sad. That's one of the moments. That's the only one of the depressing kind of moments. I mean, other than, obviously, Tony dying, but I mean, moving forward, like, into another right, film. Right, That's obviously going to be fodder for other movies, right? 
Maybe. Maybe. Probably. I mean, there's a Guardians of the Galaxy 3. I just wish they had played it that sad. Yeah, I think it would have better, been better if they played it sad rather than funny. We can't wait to hear your thoughts. Avengers Endgame is out now in wide release if you see it and agree or disagree with our takes. You can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. So how well do film spotting listeners know the MCU? Our latest poll question has the answer. Results are up next, along with some thoughts on Beyonce's homecoming and Stanley Donnan's funny face, the latest in our Donnan marathon. Stay with us. That's the one and only Beyonce. She dropped Homecoming on Netflix last week. It documents her historic two-night headlining stand at last year's Coachella Music and Arts Festival. This new film, notably, not just starring Beyonce, she is also credited as the director. I will point out, Josh, before I get your thoughts, that I turned it on the other night and did that thing I always do where I saw about 30 minutes of it mm-hmm. and I shouldn't have started it so late and I haven't gone back to finish it yet. But the first 30 minutes of Homecoming are undoubtedly thrilling. Tell me about the rest of it. Yeah, I mean, it's it sustains that, I guess, is what I would tell you. I know it's over two hours and sounds like a lot. It is interspersed with scenes about the preparation for this massive event, and that's fascinating. I think it's smart that it immerses you in the scale of it for a while and then pulls back and is like, okay, here's what it took to put this on because there are – I think around 200 people on stage with her. You saw that pyramid, right, Um, that makes up the set. And so your mind is boggled by how did they ever get this thing to work in a relatively limited amount of time. It also blows my mind for only two performances, I believe. Uh, It's not like this was a traveling tour. So all of the effort that went into this. Yeah, it's just as as you experienced. It's it's really astonishing. It's electrifying. That pyramid of people on those stands, just uh, there's so much positivity going on on that stage on all those levels. It's uh, all sorts of performance art, most of it drawn on the traditions and the talents of, you know, drum lines, steppers, backup dancers at historically black colleges and universities. So that's the inspiration for this. That's what the this is trying to bring to a place like Coachella. Loved the little homage, a little moment. I don't know if you saw that. I think it's later on to a Spike Lee's school days. No, I haven't seen it <laughs> That's a nice touch. And so it just immerses us in all this. And there's always the focus on Beyonce, of course. She is the heart of this, but really 
you can look in the corner of almost every frame and something amazing is happening around her. And that seems to be how she wants it to. It's a very communal thing. Um, so there is, you know, in some of these preparation sequences, there's a little bit of self-mythologizing. And it's interesting because she does that under the guise of demythologizing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the non-glam shots right. or kind of t- talking to people like a normal. And it, there's definitely a contrast. But you can see part of the fascination is just the handling of image that's going on here, which is understandable for someone whose fame is at this scale. Uh, There's a lot of visual texture here that's interesting, and she is the credited director, so is certainly in charge of that element as well. The rehearsal footage, a lot of it's in black and white, if I'm recalling correctly. The concert footage does have some black and white, but there's also some grainy film footage. And then you get the popping digital color because this is two nights one night everyone's in yellow and the other night everyone's in pink Mm -hmm. and it's very at first it's a little disorienting because you're like whoa like where are we now Uh, but i think once you get the hang of what's going on it's kind of fun not knowing what color is gonna we're gonna get to color when we talk about funny face for sure which color is gonna burst out at you next so yeah pretty breathtaking even for someone like me who obviously knows of her music would not consider myself a super fan at all but this this whole thing all two hours and 16 minutes or whatever had me enthralled. Yeah, and again, I've only seen that 30 minutes, but you talk about packing the frame. What stood out to me is the way it was very clearly, and this is, I suppose, the miracle of Homecoming. It's very clearly an event that was created to appeal to the audience who was there at Coachella. They had one experience, but then obviously also packaged to give not the same experience, a different one, but an equally yes. astonishing performance to the people watching at home on Netflix because the way the camera is Mm -hmm. positioned and the way the camera moves and the way obviously everything was conceived to play to that audience as well. You recognize that from the very beginning of Homecoming, which is available now on Netflix. Maybe because we're talking about Funny Face, a musical and Beyonce, Sam and I thought, why not spend one minute at least acknowledging that yes, listeners who know me very well and know my adoration for the film, all that jazz and for Bob Fosse. I think I even maybe touched on this when I heard for the first time that this series was coming out. Fosse Verdon, it's on FX. I would be in regardless of who they cast or who was involved. And some of the people involved, you've got the entire group behind Hamilton almost involved. Lin-Manuel Miranda is an executive producer. Tommy Kale, I think, is kind of the driving creative force in terms of directing and writing episodes. Alex Lacamoire as well is involved. And then you've got the cast, Sam Rockwell, the guy we all love to watch move on screen, not only can move enough like Fosse. Yeah, but I, I looks was, like was going to say he passes the test. Oh, he totally passes the test. Okay. And he looks like Fosse. And then you've got very clearly one of the top three actresses of our time, Michelle Williams playing Gwen Verdon. So I'm all in on the show, been watching it with my daughter, Sophie. As we're taping this, the third episode is about to air. When most people hear this, the third episode will have dropped. So we're only two episodes in, but I'm hooked. And I do really love, I'll say, the way it jumps around in time, the way it is telling the story of this relationship, this romantic relationship and this artistic relationship. And they're equally appreciated in this film. Maybe the artistic one is a little bit even more important because it's what connected them more than anything else. We start in episode one with a lot of time devoted to actually the making of Cabaret, but even also going back to the pajama game, which they worked on together. And it's jumping all around. We even get flashbacks to Fosse's childhood. And then in the second episode, we barely see anything about Cabaret. And it goes back to 
the production they met on and him essentially auditioning her even though she had just come off of a Tony win. So you know that it's going to play around with time throughout the entire series. And I like the way it's doing it, even if maybe in the first episode, I didn't see it so much in the second, I got a little tired of that technique we get sometimes where Fosse would be on a stage and maybe he's going through sort of a down moment of contemplation and he sees the younger him and a moment from his past that is supposed to inform what he is going through now for us, the audience. It's a little bit of a cliche. Didn't see it as much in episode two. We'll be curious how much they do it throughout the rest of the series. So we were talking about, I think it was in spoiler talk about fan service when it comes to Avengers Endgame. A related question for this, would it be a good place to start for someone who's not familiar with Fosse, or do you really need to have that background of all that other material he was involved in to appreciate hmm. what's going no, on No, I think it's a great question, because even though I read the book this series is based on, the biography mm-hmm. of Fosse, I still feel like I'm discovering it all over again. And my daughter Sophie really only knows Chicago, okay. knows Gwen Verdon, I think, from Sweeney Todd. So she knows a little bit about both performers, mm-hmm. but not much at all, and she's enthralled so okay. far. Of course, she's a Broadway musical junkie at this point. So it's been a good series for us to bond over and watch together. It airs Tuesday nights on FX. And again, we will have a little bit more musical talk as we get to the second film in our Stanley Donnan marathon in a second. We did want to highlight what we have coming on our next episode. It is our annual summer movie preview, probably going to do it the same way we've been doing all of our previews in the form of questions about the summer movie season more than just highlighting titles that we're excited about. Basically, everything that's coming out post-Endgame through Labor Day is fair game. We will continue that Stanley Donner marathon with 1963's Charade, Audrey Hepburn back in that one, Cary Grant stars alongside her. I had one final plug. I'll link to this in our show notes over at filmspotting.net. I made an appearance recently on another Chicago film podcast called Cineversary, where they take a look at films that are, as you may have guessed from the title, celebrating an anniversary. And the movie in question was Pulp Fiction, which I could fit this in, Josh, because we did an anniversary discussion of Pulp Fiction yeah. five years ago. Sounds right. Marking its 20th anniversary came out, of course, in 1994. This is now 25 years and was able to share some thoughts on that great film with the host, Eric Martin. That podcast, again, is the Cineversary podcast, and I will link to it in our show notes for this episode at filmspotting.net. Where were you? Where were you? Heimdall could not see you. I was right here where you left me. I was waiting, and then I was crying, and then I went out looking for you. You said you were coming back. I know, I know, but the Bifrost was destroyed. The Nine Realms erupted into chaos. Wars were raging. Marauders were pillaging. I had to put an end to the slaughter. So that's Thor's excuse, Adam? What's your excuse for skipping Thor the Dark World? I mean, who among us hasn't had our issues with Bitfrost? (laughs) Come on. The Dark World is the reason I couldn't answer... I've seen them all exclamation point in the current film spotting poll. A couple weeks back, we asked you, with Endgame approaching, what are your MCU bona fides? Your choices were, I've seen them all. Ugh, yeah, I've seen them all. I've seen most of them. I've seen maybe half. I've seen only a few or what's an MCU. So a poll question that really doesn't require you to think much. Don't have to make any tough choices. You really just have to acknowledge the math. How many MCU films have you seen? Kind of nice after Film Spotty Madness True. to have something easy like this. And I think it's good we spent, what was it, up to maybe a half hour 
if you include spoiler talk on Avengers Endgame. A half the, hour? The results. Oh, no. No? It didn't go a oh, half no. hour? More like 50 minutes, Josh. <laughs> oh, my goodness. At least. That wasn't a bad decision considering the results of this poll. What's an MCU? Only 4% of listeners answered that way. I've seen maybe half, 9%. I've only seen a few, 13%. Ugh, yeah, I've seen them all, 14%, and then up at the top here. I've seen most of them with 25% of the vote, but winning was, yes, 35% of film spotting listeners who voted have seen every MCU film. So some more math. Almost 75% of our audience has seen most or all of the MCU films. Now, does that surprise you? If, if, no. That, that sounds no, that's about how right? how I would have gone. Okay. Yeah. I would have thought maybe a little less than well, that. Well, as you but... said during the review, it really has come to dominate our film culture. And I think those numbers reflect that. We got this response from Eric Nelson, who writes, after 10 years of listening to film spotting, I'm certain my willingness to defend the MCU means film spotting nation will grab their pitchforks and head to Wisconsin to revoke my film spotting membership card. Well, maybe not so much based on those results, Eric, but I assure you, I'm not a fanboy who puts the madness into March by mindlessly voting hobbits into the final four. <laughs> that said, nor am I someone who can muster up Kempinar-level pretentiousness and quickly dismiss the MCU. I'm glad that falls on you. Yeah, totally. You always get it. People <laughs> misrepresenting your opinions. I mean, they're mostly right, but now it's me. He says, first I'll state the obvious, but often overlooked. Movie stars shine in the MCU. Hemsworth, Evans, Downey, Pratt, Cumberbatch, Larson, they're all superstars for a reason. And if you want evidence, just watch any of their MCU movies. They're dramatic, funny, engaging. They light up the screen and bring a level of charisma that I hope to see anytime I walk into a theater. A movie that needs a true star but doesn't have one is DOA, Eric continues. I don't care how good your screenplay or cinematography are, but we've gotten to a point where I can go to any MCU movie and be confident that we'll be watching material that allows stars to play to their strengths. Sure, the third act may be lacking and the stakes are always beyond galactic cliches, but give me two hours with any of the Chris's or with Brie or Samuel L. Jackson in their MCU roles, and I know I'll be reminded of the elixir of life that Hollywood runs on. I can't wait to discuss Tree of Life Roma or Scorsese's Silence with my boys, but that's still years away. Movies Are Prayers is great, but not really accessible for my 10-year-old. The MCU helps me build a film school foundation that is respectable, engaging, and at times thoughtful. I know I haven't convinced anyone, but if you're going to want my Film Spotting Nation membership card back, you're going to have to pry it out of my cold, dead hands. <laughs> Forget convincing anyone, methinks Eric might protest just a little too much. Andrew Swetman says, mostly commenting to say that I love, love, love the comment from Eric Nelson, and I agree completely. Yes, I enjoy and even prefer more highbrow and arthouse fare, but there's something exciting about a big movie with a big star or a bunch of stars. The old days of classic Hollywood movie stardom are all but gone, and this is probably a good thing to be sure, but it also means it can be difficult to find people in your community who have seen the same things as you, especially for me here in middle America. And while I may be the only person in my office who went to see Gloria Bell a few weeks ago, I can be pretty sure everyone will be talking about the Avengers at the water cooler in a few weeks. I love the common theme here. It, it, it doesn't have to be either or, right? It really doesn't. I mean, these like film this show, fanatic, we have given I think this these episode films do. is a good example. Yes. Yeah. Looking ahead to summer, we have our new poll question. I think this one is a dandy from our producer, Sam Van Hallgren. Thinking about that summer movie preview, we're asking you, what summer 19 drive-in double feature would you pile in the car for? So what Sam has done is he has found four great pairings of movies over the course of the summer that are coming out on the same weekend the options are. I, I got to ask. Yeah. 
I hope Sam doesn't get paid by the hour or this, <laughs> this thing was pricey. Yeah. There is a sure. ton of work put Worth into it. this. Very creative. Worth every dime. Very fun. And that's all he's getting is dimes. <laughs> Our first option. Out May 31st, would you go to Godzilla, the King of the Monsters, followed by the Elton John biopic Rocket Man? So Godzilla, the follow-up to 2014's Godzilla, Rocket Man, directed by Dexter Fletcher. That's the director who took over for Brian Singer on Best Picture nominee Bohemian Rhapsody, Taron Edgerton there as Elton John. Okay, so that's the first pairing, Godzilla and Rocket Man. Or would you prefer to go see, these are out June 21st, Toy Story 4 and Child's Play. Child's Play is the reboot slash remake, I just call them reheats, of the 1988 horror <laughs> film. Mark Hamill is taking over for Brad Dorf as the voice of the murderous doll Chucky and probably some pretty clever scheduling there to put that out the same day as Toy Story 4. Your third double feature option, out July 3rd, Spider-Man Far From Home and Ari Aster's Midsummer. Aster, of course, the director of last year's horror hit Hereditary. Midsummer is about a bizarre pagan ritual in Sweden, and also apparently there will be murder. Sure. Far From Home, this is the follow-up to 2017. Spider-Man Homecoming, it has Jake Gyllenhaal as the villain here. I believe he's the villain. Yeah, Mysterio. Mysterio. Last option, out August 2nd, these two. Fast and Furious Presents Hobbs and Shaw. Is that really the title? Yeah. Fast and Furious Presents. Well, I guess. I don't know. That's uh, I, I'm going to trust Sam. I already love it. And The New Mutants. So Mutants is about the first graduates from Charles Xavier's school. This is in the X-Men family then, I'm assuming. Sure. Yeah. Reportedly, this film has been plagued by delays and reshoots, but will probably be ready by August 2nd. Hobbs and Shaw, well... Aficionados of Fast and Furious know that's Dwayne, Luke Hobbs Johnson, and Jason Deckard Shaw Statham. And there's got to be cars in this. There are I also cars. There are cars. Reportedly, there are cars. In this as well. So <laughs> this, is, this is great work by Sam. Yes. Pairing all these up. And wow, I am going to, I want nothing to do with the Elton John biopic. Just not, I survived without Bohemian Rhapsody. I don't need this either. Um, Spider-Man Far From Home. I mean, I'm good for a while now. I don't, you know, the MCU, just let, let, give me a little yeah. breathing space, just a little. Loved Hereditary, so that's tough. I'm going to set those two aside. Hobbs and Shaw, that title almost has me wanting to go that route, but also more superheroes. No thanks. Toy Story 4 and Child's Play, it is. Don't know if I can take the kids to it. No. To that drive-in double feature, but that's where I'm going. That's a really good choice. I don't know for sure where I want to go on this one. There is the approach of just looking at which two films you're most interested in seeing. And certainly Toy Story 4 would probably be at the top of that list. And then there's the question, which pairing is the best double feature for a drive-in? Yes. And I guess along those lines, even though Hobbs and Shaw by far is the best drive-in friendly movie. Agreed. Not least of which you're sitting in your car, so you can maybe feel just as cool as them they behind your minivan. They should take everybody's keys away, or that could get ugly <laughs> really at the drive should. My uninspired answer is probably Spider-Man and Midsummer because Spider-Man mm. seems like a fun movie, and then if I'm going to watch Midsummer and it's going to scare me, I want to be surrounded by lots of people. I don't want to be alone in the dark at home. I don't want to be alone in the dark in a theater. I want to feel a little detached from it. Maybe. Really? Yeah, I maybe I the would, drive-in works. I would think you'd be more exposed in the drive-in. Mm. They are kind of out in the middle of nowhere. What if What if it involves murder cars? <laughs> are those cars that murder people? Yeah. Oh, okay. I mean, why haven't they made that yet? I guess they did. Bizarre, John Carpenter's Christine. Bizarre pagan rituals, Adam. It's right there. Yeah, there you go. Volvos well, in Sweden. Murder Volvos. Terrifying. <laughs> 
<laughs> we want to know what you think. And please do explain your picks in addition to telling us where you're from. If you comment in the poll, you can vote now at filmspotting.net. We do have a final bit of film spotting madness business to wrap up before we put the madness tree out on the curb and we finally put away all the madness decorations. The results from that's our how, early... That's how we burn the copies of the films. We light that's that true. tree on fire and just toss them at it. There you go. We have our early Madness 2020 voting helping us determine the 2020 shortlist. So Sam and I are just trying to get the list of films that will be in contention to make the 2020 tournament the best of the decade. This decade, the 2010s. We're just trying to get that out so people have time to prepare. It's not going to be the definitive list down to 64 that's going to make the tournament. We are going to give you lots of options, all the films we're considering, and already people have started writing in. We haven't even put the list out yet, and we're already getting comments via email, Twitter, and on Letterboxd telling us what we should be sure not to overlook. And guess what? We've overlooked probably half of the ones people are mentioning. So Off to a great start. We are just doing swimmingly. But here are four movies that are going to make the shortlist, and here are four movies that aren't. Basically, Sam and I couldn't decide, so we're making Film Spotting Nation decide for us. Only one Alejandro Gonzalez in Yari 2 film is going to make the cut. Is it Birdman or The Revenant? These are final results? Final. Polls are closed. Polls are closed. I don't care for this one bit. The Revenant isn't making it. Only got 40% of the vote. Birdman's in. Good job, listeners. Star Wars, it's The Force Awakens or it's The Last Jedi. It's not both. Not how I voted, but I don't feel that strongly with this one. I'm okay with The Last Jedi getting in 59% of the vote. Now, non-MCU superheroes. Deadpool brought edgy comedy to these comic book movies, and Logan turned a superhero movie into an existential western. Which is more important? Which is more valuable? Which one deserves to be? In Film Spotting Madness, the listeners were pretty decisive on this one. You should always go with the existential Western, as they did. Logan, 77% of the vote. And finally, as we're talking about the Avengers and Endgame on this show, you can go back and include the very first Avengers movie, or you can include the previous one, Avengers Infinity War. I actually thought this would come out completely differently. I, for some reason, felt that our listeners, that most MCU fans, had the exact opposite take on these two films and valued Infinity War more, but they apparently do not. Nope. Marvel's The Avengers is getting in with 57% of the vote. Now, Adam, would you vote if we had thrown Endgame into this? Would you vote for that over these two? I absolutely would. It's definitely going to go higher. I think I probably would too. Yeah, it's going to go higher on my MCU ranking than both of those films. We will, in the very near future, share this pretty long short list so everyone can start their homework maybe over the summer even you can get working on your blind spots we will have a lot more about that in the coming weeks and we encourage you as always to check out the past few years of film spotting madness and the results you can do that at filmspotting.net slash madness we are oh no what's the matter when you possibly make a model out of that you can't be serious when I get through with you, you'll look like, what do you call beautiful? A tree. You look like a tree. Frankly, dear, your modesty reveals to me self-appraisal often makes us sad. And if I add, your funny face appeals to me. Please don't think I've suddenly gone mad. You have all the qualities of Peter Pan. 
Fred Astaire and Audrey Hepburn in 1957's Funny Face. I'm not sure saying you have all the qualities of Peter Pan. Is that romantic for a woman to hear, Josh? Mm, but it kind Is of, that lovely? It kind of fits when you're talking Audrey Hepburn. It does. Directed by Stanley Donnan, Funny Face is the second film in our Donnan marathon. In Funny Face, Hepburn plays Joe Stockton, a highbrow intellect working in a Greenwich Village bookstore. The editor of Quality Magazine, a fashion magazine, Kay Thompson's Maggie Prescott, ambushes her shop for a photo shoot. Astaire plays Dick Avery, the photographer who sees something promising in Hepburn's looks. And yes, in case you were wondering, Fred Astaire in this film has 30 years on the 28-year-old Hepburn. More on that definitely to come. I love that Kate Thompson describes that bookstore as sinister. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great touch. Yeah, it is a great touch. And there are other great touches in this film. Our friend, the professor, Nathaniel Myers in South Bend, Indiana, as he has done for the films in this marathon and the last couple marathons, he's going to get us started. Hello, film spotting. While watching this week's marathon film, Funny Face, I found myself thinking back to one of Film Spotting's recent top five lists, that of the top five uses of color. Donnan employs color in wild and wonderful ways in this film, from its opening number, Think Pink, which begins with a swirl of pink cloth flung directly towards the camera, to the shock of green, yellow, and orange of Hepburn's chiffon hat set against the dingy grays and blacks of her bookshop, to the darkroom, awash in red light as the setting for the film's titular song. Color is always in movement in this film, and it creates a sense of momentum that I think is ironically heightened by the frequent still frames and images peppered throughout that capture that color and movement. I'm thinking, for example, of the famous fashion montage that ends with Hepburn descending the staircase in a red dress and a shawl that appears ready to lift her off in the other direction. This use of color and this tension between movement and stillness, they make for an impressive and appropriate depiction of the world of fashion. They also, to use a word taken from Sam's letterbox review of the movie, make for a pretty weird film at times, and not necessarily in a bad way. Though I do eagerly anticipate your thoughts on the arrhythmic, contorted dance moves of the Paris beatniks in the cafe. But I do also worry that Funny Faces may be more style than it is substance, and worse, that it even possibly veers towards a kind of off-putting smugness in the way it ultimately affirms the lifestyle of the fashion industry. If the film's central conflict is built out of a tension between lifestyles, that, again, of the fashion world and of some parodic form of intellectual life, the film stacks the deck pretty highly in its favor, and I'm not sure that its central romance between the 58-year-old Fred Astaire and the 28-year-old Hepburn does enough to earn its particular outlook. So what do you guys think? If you had seen this last year, would this film have earned a place in Film Spotting's top five uses of color? Or what about the top five credit sequences all the way back when you did that list in 2012? Or did its story and central romance undercut any of the goodwill it may have established for you with those bravura stylistic elements? Thanks, guys. Thank you very much, Nathaniel. Doing great work as always, though Nathaniel seems not to have noticed that our setups usually just end with one question. He's given me a he's given me a long to-do list yeah, here. So let me has. see if I can race through some of this. Yes, should absolutely have been on my list of the top five uses of color. It is such a dominant and great element it is. of this movie. Not so sure about the credit sequences. Maybe would have to give that some more thought, look more closely at that list. Uh, but also, 
a strength here, I would say. Now, the, the really tough question here and the one that I wrestled with as I was watching the movie and was writing about it afterwards, um, this, this central romance, how did that play with the film? And it's connected very tightly for me to the tension that the movie is really about, which is also troubling in some ways. I didn't see them. I saw them as representatives of different eras. And in a way that wasn't out for the movie. So I saw Astaire as representing, you know, the populist entertainment of the 30s and 40s, the lighthearted stuff, the sort of stuff that he was sort of, you know, he held the banner for in those Astaire yeah. Rogers musicals. And uh, he represented that, whereas Hepburn is here representing um, the the youth movement of the time, the 50s beatniks. Now, her off-screen persona did not. But her age certainly does in the film. That's the role she's playing, even the haircut that she's given. So I saw this as like a push and pull between those eras, this Mm. changing youth movement. But the movie is really on one side of that. The movie is on Fred Astaire's side. Yeah. And as much as it's, it's fun to watch that pull back and forth... There's something dispiriting about the fact that the professor, that Audrey Hepburn's Joe, she agrees to go to Paris so she can meet this professor, right? Right. He turns out to be a real creep. And in the end, Astaire whisks her away. We're to assume to a life of modeling? I mean, is she just – the suggestion to me is that she's kind of giving up this other Mm – these other passions, these intellectual passions she had in her life. They don't want you to think about that, Josh. They don't want you to think about (laughs) it. And you know what? I was okay with not thinking about really? it. This movie was so entertaining. I just kind of set all those intellectual objections I had aside. Huh. Maybe part of it is that Hepburn really sells that she likes Dick Avery, that she finds something she finds something that was missing from mm. her life in him. It she has maybe, to do a lot of selling. It, but I think she does. I think she's she does. great. And it uh it doesn't have to replace what she had. That's where the trouble comes in. It's maybe fills something that was missing, but I wish the movie had come in the perfect world. This movie would have found a place where there was a blend, right? And mm-hmm. it doesn't. It, it wants you just to have fun and to look back when things were supposedly simpler and more entertaining. Um, and it's just so darn entertaining that that it kind of convinces me in the moment to do that too, even though I can sit back afterwards and have have you know, real objections to where this movie goes. Well, that's really smart and astute of you to make that connection that was completely lost on me. This idea that the age difference maybe doesn't totally work, but it can at least be sort of justified in seeing her as a representative of a completely different generation, a younger generation, and seeing Astaire, as he is, representative of a different one, more of the establishment that she is otherwise trying to reject. So if you see it that way, then... It can kind of work. I do think that Nathaniel, as usual, neatly summarizes the dilemma of watching Funny Face, which is how much you appreciate the style, the visual style, but also the fashion, the costumes themselves. There is lots of pizzazz, to use the word that Astaire's character, Dick, and also Kay Preston's character, the editor, uses a lot in the film. There is plenty of that. So how much you appreciate that versus how much you can tolerate, I would say, that central relationship. Last week when we talked about On the Town, I said it was tough to have a good musical without good music. I think here we learn, and I do overall like this movie better than I liked On the Town, I think it's tough to have a good musical without a really good romance. At least with On the Town, whether it was Ann Miller and Jules Munchen, or it was Sinatra and Betty Garrett, or Gene Kelly and Vera Ellen, I was genuinely pulling 
for all three of those couples to to find love and stay in love. And, you know, you have no idea where this is going to go after the boys have to go back to their boat. But you see a connection that they make and you are rooting for them. And I think about even a sequence I highlighted as one of my favorites in On the Town, the walking down Main Street tap dance with Vera Ellen and Gene Kelly. It's a sweet and innocent tune, but Josh, there's more longing and lust, or at least sensuality, in a single glance and shuffle ball change in that number than we get in all of Funny Face. But and, aren't you kind of grateful for that? No, I, mean, I, well, I wouldn't yes. want these two to have no, a sexual that's, relationship. that's the problem. You just, you just nailed it. And I think it's easy to say it's the age difference. That's the reason why we don't get any of that sensuality. And maybe it is. It happens to Hepburn as well in two Billy Wilder movies. I'll mention real quick. Sabrina yeah. with Humphrey Bogart and Love in the Afternoon with Gary Cooper. I think... I use both of them in my Billy Wilder class, and it didn't matter whether it was male or female. And this is a class, it's the Graham School, so it's people ranging from 18 to 80. And it was predominantly, actually, the older people, the 50-year-olds, 6-year-olds, 7-year-olds who were saying, I just can't watch Audrey Hepburn fall in love. I'm not buying for a second that Mm -hmm. she's falling in love with Humphrey Bogart or with Gary Cooper. And there's a little bit of that element here. I'm already a little wary of watching Hepburn with the 25-year-older Cary Grant yeah, this next is, week. This is turning into something of a Hepburn marathon, it, a Hepburn it, mini-marathon. It is, right? But at least with Grant, I imagine he'll bring some heat. He'll bring some virility, the way Gene Kelly does in On the Town. And I think it's more than just age with the stairs, what I'm getting at. It's the way the character is conceived, probably, but more accurately performed. There's a kind of old-fashionedness, oh, yeah. a glibness, an aw-shucksness, an asexuality <laughs> to a stare here anyway. I haven't watched Top Hat and Swing Time and some other no, stare movies in a he's long never, time. But, uh, he's never a sexy presence. No, he I really mean, Rogers isn't. is who, who brought that famously. Right. And I never felt its absence in those films the way I did in this film. And again, maybe it's consistent with other stare romantic performances or not, but the gap between a stare and Hepburn for me in this film, it isn't years so much as feeling as passion. She is selling it so hard and I think overall does compensate for what Astaire isn't bringing to this. Yeah, I, and I would say I don't ever buy the romance, but I her, I buy her affection for him. How much better would this movie have been if it had been a mentor-type relationship between the two of them? Mm. Because that's what they're selling on screen. Yes. She admires his creative ability. Yep. That, that's where their worlds meet, right? When it, when it comes to creativity, she appreciates the arts. And he is an artist. And you can believe they have some common ground there. So to, to force a romance on top of it, mm-hmm. it doesn't entirely work the way it might have. It's a curious thing that happens to Hepburn throughout her career. I don't know if it's because she reads so young that, you know, it doesn't really make sense. It's almost like a compensation, like because she reads so young in her presence that they would cast her with someone who reads old. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just I can't entirely explain it, but certainly it's a through line in her career. And it's a hiccup here. It's It doesn't work to the movie's benefit. But what does? You mentioned the music, so much better music than in On the Town. Yeah. And, uh, you know, some what's interesting is some of the same people doing some of this work. We have Roger Eats Roger again. Roger back as a producer. And yeah. he's and he does Think Pink, that opening number mm-hmm. that begins wonderfully with Kay Thompson throwing a roll of pink fabric right at the camera, and then they go on to redecorate off the cuff the, the corporate offices of this magazine. They, there, there's a, a chorus of men, a chorus of women behind her. Pink, 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 pink is the latest white you know. Pink, pink, 
just an ecstatic opening number. And I was, you know, I was on board with this movie then before you even meet Astaire or Hepburn. So I think that helps, right? Yeah. Is it kind of wins totally. you over yes. right with that number. But then we have uh, other numbers by George and Ira Gershwin. And I would say that the wealth is spread around here. As, as we kind of said, the blame can't be spread <laughs> towards one person in on the town. Here, the wealth is spread evenly. Edens has Think Pink and another great one on How to Be Lovely, where Hepburn and Kay Thompson do. It's almost a snarky little duet that tweaks the fashion mm-hmm. industry there, whereas yep. most of the movies as Nathaniel indicated, is on the side of the fashion industry. There's a little bit of satire going on there, but the Gershwins have two wonderful numbers in here as well, including the title number, Funny Face, that takes place in this dark room. And even though it's a moment of a stare wooing Hepburn, it kind of works for me because this, he has mm-hmm. this gentlemanly manner to it. She seems, again, appreciative of uh, his movements. And Hepburn has a background as a ballet dancer. I think they're very they're very good together in this number. They use a spinning stool as a third dance party. Mm-hmm. That's one of my favorite numbers in the picture. Yeah, one of the elements I liked in that darkroom scene, and there's another number where it really stood out to me, and whether or not this was meant to be the kind of playful, almost meta moment that it is or not, I don't know, but... It starts out where you recognize how confined the space is as they are acting within that space. And then once it turns into a musical number, you are keenly aware that it's no longer that space, that they're on a soundstage. The camera widens out. The darkroom all of a sudden feels huge once they start dancing in it. So it's sort of like they're saying, you know what? Yes, this is the fantasy part of this. And this is where we're going to just enjoy them dancing and singing together. You touched on Think Pink, and I want to get into that a little bit more. Nathaniel touched on the use of color, and he really nailed it where you you recognize, of course, from that opening scene, but right after it, where you know that color is going to be such a key part of what Donnan is doing visually in this movie, it's really in that next number when they go to her shop and you see how drab it is, how mm-hmm. every book on the shelf seems to be some old faded color, lots of browns, lots of blacks and, and dark grays. And then when she does her number, she has that green and yellow hat that she puts on. Yeah, left behind by the photo shoot. Yeah, and it's not only a key object for her, this almost object of fantasy within, again, within this this kind of confined drab space, it is what our eyes instantly go to, wrapped around Audrey Hepburn's face, which we're already staring at probably. Anyway, a quick note about that. I was watching this movie with Sophie, and my son, Holden, 17-year-old, walks into the room. He does not watch any of these movies with me, isn't interested the same way that Sophie is. He walks in inexplicably, sits down. This is during the Think Pink number, and he's kind of into it. And he stays, and he's going to watch the movie. And then they go to that sequence where we meet Audrey Hepburn. Audrey Hepburn walks into the frame for the first time, and I hear Holden go, she's cute. (laughs) 
He's never seen her before. He's never seen an Audrey Hepburn has movie. Has no point of reference. Has no or, point of reference. Yeah. So this is this is a 17-year-old seeing Audrey Hepburn for the first time. And he had the reaction. I think we all probably had, and certainly 17-year-olds and others had at the time when she walked on screen. So I loved that little moment. We all laughed, said, yes, Holden, welcome to 50 years of popular culture. We all recognize the beauty of Audrey Hepburn and how unique of a presence she is. But the color and also the way the camera moves in this film is a step up, absolutely, from on the town. And some of the things I lamented in last week's discussion, not only that moment where the pink is thrown out at the camera, but it almost hits the camera, which is just this nice kind of moment of excitement, of revelry. I was entranced by that entire opening and really do think that it elevates here rather than just documents, which it does mostly for me and on the town. That opening tracking shot that we see repeated following the editor into her office through two doorways, the syncopation of the way the women who work for her all gather around her after they've entered the room, those insert shots and freezes during her song, and the doors turning pink. You said it. It's sort of a live remodeling we get of her office during a number, and the doors all go from multicolored to completely pink. And if I remember correctly, there's this great kind of use of ellipsis there, where she's saying, I want pink everywhere. The whole world needs to be dominated by pink. We now see her office space transformed into pink. And then when the Dobish character comes in, at the end of that number, it just suggests that that's all been successful. The pink is everywhere. And now they're almost looking for the next thing. So time just sort of collapses in that moment. And I also want to highlight, you talk about people you have to give credit to on this film. How about Richard Avedon, the photographer who apparently was a visual consultant on this film. So that great sequence where you could have just given me 90 minutes or 100 minutes of following Audrey Hepburn around Paris, actually on location with those amazing costumes, the Edith Head and Givenchy costumes, and the way those are lit, the way the production design complements those outfits and Hepburn's movement and her physicality in that space, that's gorgeous stuff. And it also picks up on one of the great things about On the Town, which was the use of New York and the on-location shooting and everything about those Paris sequences where you can tell they are really shooting in Paris. And again, a nice visual trick, breaking up the screen into threes as the three characters all go out on their different tourist trips. He combines those into one number visually. I thought that was a great touch. I want to see the den of thinking men like Trompeau-Sartre I must philosophize with all the guys around Montmartre and Montparnasse I'm strictly tourist but I couldn't care less when they parlez-vous me then I gotta confess that's for me Bonjour Paris Light up the Louvre A lot of interesting camera tricks here. It sort of makes magazine advertising art come to life, and that's part of this world, too. So it helps build that world. I'm glad you mentioned the costume designers because this is a perfect example of making costumes not only fit the film but fit the actors. Uh, The dresses here are, you get the sense, designed around Hepburn's small frame. Mm -hmm. And it it really shows you costumes are something that seem to be a given in musicals but can be done badly. I think of just having watched Hello, Dolly! for the first time. And the poor women in that film are just layered with fabric upon fabric upon fabric and hats that get bigger and bigger. 
and it, it does. It's just so that they can. You get the sense it doesn't mm. really apply to the characters. And here, it it perfectly fits who not necessarily who Joe is, but who these this fashion world wants her to be, and gives us a sense of what they saw mm-hmm. in that bookstore. Uh, also, another thing that we think is common to musicals is the camera as a dance partner, essentially. And the movements you were talking about here are very delicate but intricate in the way Donnan is pushing in when mm-hmm. he wants to push in, pull back Pulling like he does too, yeah. in that sequence you were talking about, the opening sequence, and just giving the performers in the darkroom sequence the space they need to do what they're going to do without intruding, without separating us from their movements. And there's a real elegance to the camera work in this film. And speaking of elegance, I want to get to something that um, that is particular about Hepburn. And it, it, Holden's remark made me think about this. It isn't only that, you know, she, she is stunningly beautiful and, and very distinct looking, but it's the way she holds that. And this mm-hmm. is true even in something like Roman Holiday, where she's supposed to be this monarch, but doesn't, she looks the part, carries herself like 90% of the part, but then gives us, and I'm talking about her as a, as a movie star here yeah. now, gives us that 10% of real personness yeah. that allows us in. There's a misfit aspect to her. There her is. characters and her as a movie star. Yes. Yeah. And that is the crucial element that makes her stand apart from the countless other actors who might be able to look similarly on the screen. That's the distinction between her and the model we meet at the very beginning. The model at the bookstore who they who Avery pushes aside in favor of her. And I think that's one way the age difference is palatable to me as well because we get a sense here that Joe, there is a modesty to her. She doesn't believe that she's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And Avery trying to convince her of this as a photographer is it's not lecherous. It's it's um, for some reason it does work on that level because she she's able to to loosely wear this air of refinement that's natural to her, that makes her, you know, for lack of a better word, accessible. While we're talking about Hepburn and how distinct she is as a movie star, Nathaniel said he anticipated our thoughts on the arrhythmic contorted dance moves of oh, the yeah. Beatniks in the Cafe. We gotta talk that about Bohemian that. That Bohemian number was maybe my favorite number in the really? film, other than Think Pink. I loved it because I love the awkwardness of it. I love her pure form of expression there. I loved how inelegant actually that number was i think it's because of the way she sells it hepburn's commitment to that performance makes it one of my favorites yeah she's she's committed i i will say uh, you can sense despite what i said about the ballet background that she's she's being challenged i think that's what i like about it josh i think maybe that that it seems challenging that it seems hard and yet she's doing it anyway the character is doing incredibly it doesn't come natural to her it's we mentioned the athleticism of the numbers in on the town this one is incredibly athletic. I think one of my reservations about it is you can also sense that the movie, this goes back to the argument the movie wants to make, is somewhat making fun of her here. Hmm. And and that doesn't feel quite right to me. But speaking of limitations, I would say you do also sense Astaire's age in moments. I mean, there there are a lot of moments here in where moments, it's yeah. incredible <laughs> what he's doing. And, and he, you know, obviously still has immense talent. But his big solo routine, it's a Gershwin number, Let's Kiss and Make Up, it ends with this extended sequence where he's essentially pretending to be a matador with his now coat a and real his umbrella. It's a highlight because he pulls it off, but yes. I think I'm just comparing it to those Rogers Astaire pictures where his defining characteristic, it's not sexiness, it's effortlessness. Mm. 
and you do sense the effort here. He makes it across the finish line, but just barely. You kind of you're watching it, and then there's a sigh of relief for me when he when he pulls it off. Yeah, and I think that's it that he does pull it off. Even if you see the effort, how many people could pull off? that number with that coat taking that overcoat and making it into that kind of matador's red cape i was still sort of amazed by that in that moment that's funny face the second movie in our stanley don and marathon we're going to roll on with this next week more audrey hepburn along with Kerry grant in charade if you are following along with this marathon we'd love to hear your thoughts you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net of course find the lineup and past marathon discussions at filmspotting.net slash marathons josh that's our show that is the show over on our website you can also find reviews interviews and top fives going all the way back to 2005 and you can vote in the current film spotting poll this is a fun one sam has compiled a summer 2019 drive-in double feature pick which one you would go to Also, if you haven't already, please do check out our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. This week, it's part two of their Little Big Guys pairing. So 1988's Big and the new movie Shazam. They're talking Shazam this week. The Next Picture Show does come out every Tuesday at midnight, and you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to get yourself a Film Spotting t-shirt, we have other merch as well. You can visit filmspotting.net slash shop. If you want to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, Adam is at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. And to subscribe to the weekly Filmspotting newsletter, go to filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out in wide release this weekend, Avengers Endgame, recommended by both of us. And along with that third film and our Stanley Donnan Marathon, next week we will share our top five questions about the summer movie season. Filmspotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.